elementary age kids or Mr. Jeff is right there. He would love to. Uh, there's Miss Jody. Well, good morning. Glad you're here again. Just one more time. If you are here for the first time, we want to tell you what an honor and privilege it is to have you in worship with us. Uh, my name is Treb Prater. I'm lead pastor here at the Vine Community Church, and uh, we are privileged to have you here, especially those of you that are here for the very first time ever. Uh, we are honored that you would join us this morning, whether you're here with family and friends or, or whether you're just kind of walking by. We are glad that you're here. We have been for two years, um, close to two years now, going to the book of Acts, word by word, verse by verse, movement by movement. We have been through that. We are in the home stretch and we quit. So we, uh, we stopped for a little bit right before we finished, mainly because I'm going to try and drag it out as long as I can. But we take, we've taken little breaks in there. We're on a break right now. And so um, mainly because the summer I've been gone here and there. And so we're just going to kind of kind of wait for two minutes. And we're going to wrap up the last two chapters of the book of Acts and put a bow on the end of that. But we've taken a break and we've looked at all kinds of things. But, but last week we lifted up Psalm 89. And I, and I kind of unpacked it from the standpoint of it really is one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture because of it, it's sort of deeply authentic nature. It's, it's not just a psalm that you can hang on your refrigerator. Now, sure, you can pull out a few pieces and, and we can kind of talk about God's faithfulness and his love and say he's great. But if you read it from beginning to end, it's really haunting and it's really challenging because it's really authentic. And the psalmist is, is sort of pouring out his heart. And last week we looked at the first eight verses and we talked about God's great love, his faithful covenant kind of love, and his faithfulness. And we explored that as a precursor to what we're going to get into today, which is sort of the deep, challenging feelings that I think a lot of us have but are very afraid to actually say out loud to anybody else, much less to God. And this psalm, Psalm 89, takes these anchor points of truth and it pins them with the cry of the psalmist's heart, which is essentially, God, why have you betrayed me? And that's what it feels like. And we're going to kind of explore it from, from that standpoint. But just as a quick reminder, Psalm 89, for those of you that weren't here last week, is, is a deep and sort of emotional outcry because some horrific things have happened. It's not a fun time in the life of Israel. It's actually a really difficult time. The Babylonians have come in and they've ransacked Judah and they have carried off the people and they've destroyed the temple and they've burned down the walls and they've separated mothers from their children and they've carried off all the sort of important people into exile. This is the second massive exile that's happened to Jerusalem. The first was when the Assyrians came in and knocked out the northern kingdom, but this is the Babylonians coming in and taking out the southern kingdom, Judah, destroying everything, and the whole nation of Israel is scattered to the wind. And they're broken. I mean, imagine having your family torn apart and watching your father drug off to some country that you don't even know where he is, but the hands of brutal, brutal soldiers. The Babylonians were brutal. And they took the temple that you had worked for, that God had promised, where God's very presence dwelled in the Old Testament, right? And they burned it and ransacked it and crushed it. Everything that you know is gone. And Psalm 89 is a cry right in the middle of that. In the middle of that life that is not pretty and perfect, but feels like a shell of what you were promised by God. And the psalmist is crying out. And so this evening, or this morning, I guess, we are going to be in the back part, the last 10 verses uh, of Psalm 89. Um, and so if you've got that Bible, I want you to go ahead and flip there. And we're going to work through it a little bit together. And, and we're not going to be able to really tie this up real well. It just kind of ends and it lingers. But I want to I lift up a few things, a few accusations that the psalmist makes about and to God. 
and a few questions that he hangs out there, and then we're going to tie it back into the first part of the psalm and see if we can't make sense of what is really, really unfolding. So if you've got that, we're going to start um, in Psalm 89. How about uh, verse 38, if you've got it, and then the back into the psalm. Now, you've got to keep in mind your context, because our context is everything as we read Scripture. So let's, let's uh, go before the Lord, let's pray, and then we'll just sort of dive into it and see what we can find. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here um, this morning. We thank you just for the opportunity to open your word. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. God, that you are uh, speaking to us directly through it. Um, So, Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. Take a moment and just ask God to teach you something or to reveal himself to you. Just ask God to move in your life this morning. Pray for someone around you, even if you don't know them. We do this each week. Just be in the habit of praying for somebody else, other people, that God would move in them. And Lord, we turn this entire morning over to you. God, we, we ask that you would penetrate our hearts, that you would let us be brutally honest this morning with ourselves and with you and with our own questions and fears and doubts and to find anchor points in what we know to be true about who you are. So Lord, we turn this over to you. We thank you for Jesus, the reason that we breathe and live and love, God, that you have redeemed our souls through Christ. And God, we are uh, grateful. So Lord, we ask this in Jesus' perfect In holy name, amen. So Psalm 89, it's a rough and rugged one, and it's haunting and emotional. And last week we looked at the sort of faithfulness and great love of God as a a precursor to what we're getting ready to unpack. Because the psalmist spends the first 37 verses basically trying to declare what he knows to be true about God, even though he doesn't feel what he's saying. He's basically saying, God, I, I, I know these things to be true but my heart is giving me away. So let's take a look at verse 38 on. But you have rejected, you have spurned, and you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant, and you have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life? For what futility you have created all men. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts of which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. And then verse 52, praise be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. 
And a lot of people believe that that verse 52, a lot of scholars believe, was, was added by a compiler that took all these psalms and put them together. And the psalms are actually laid out in books, big three big sections. And, and Psalm 89 ends that second middle section. And, and a lot of people believe that it was that little forever, praise be to God forever, was added as a way of tying all those psalms together. But probably wasn't a part of this original outcrying that our psalmist has. It doesn't change anything any, either way. It's actually in you can trace it all the way back to even the earliest manuscripts. It doesn't change anything except to say this brings to an end this entire movement of, of what essentially is cries of the heart, that sort of middle section, songs of, uh, psalms of lament. But this psalm is really powerful to me, and it, and it speaks very directly to my heart because I was raised in a category where we weren't really allowed to question God, right? We weren't really allowed to offer up our deep sort of fears because that lack that, that kind of presented a lack of faith and we didn't want to do that I didn't want to present God or present the people who had a, a struggling or a doubting faith and so we learned to just take all of our questions and hide behind the God I, I just I know you're these things and so I don't even want to say it out loud but I, I'm wondering and I'm feeling and I don't mention those things. And most of us have lived in those categories where we're not really, really true with each other and we're not true with God because we're afraid of what that means. We don't want to be the only person in the room that doubts if any of this is real. We don't want to be the only person that says, how come everybody else feels these things and has an emotional reaction and I'm over here feeling completely mediocre and empty? How come everybody else seems to have these encounters with God, and I'm wondering why things continue to happen to me over and over and over again, right? We've been trained to not ask God our real questions because we're afraid of what that means. I was raised in a very similar culture. We just sort of did church, loved church, did youth group, loved all that stuff, but never really were real with each other or with God because we didn't know what that meant, and I was afraid to do it. But what Psalm 89 does and actually several of the psalms in this section, is it gives us a permission to ask real questions to God without fear of all the repercussions. Because there's some anchor points here that the psalmist lays before he lays out these accusations and questions that I'm getting ready to get into. And he spends 37 verses basically saying, God, these are the things that I know to be true. I don't see them right now. I don't feel them right now. But I'm going to hold them down as anchors in my life because what I'm getting ready to yell at you is going to come across as desperate. And you can see the psalm visibly change. In verse 38, he uses that transition word, but. So he's laid 37 verses of God's promises of protection, provision, faithfulness, and loving kindness and great love. And in verse 38, he says, but. And he's going to start off with two major accusations at God. He says this, but you have rejected and you have spurned and you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and you have defiled his crown in the dust. You know, essentially the psalmist is saying, as he is saying, he is saying, God, you have rejected, you have pushed away and you have re kind of rebuked or taken back your word. So all that that I just told you about how faithful and how loving and how great you are, you have now pushed away, you have taken back your word, and you have rejected not only me, but the covenant that you have made with this nation. And that's a pretty strong accusation to say, God, you have rejected me, you have pushed me away, and you have taken your promise, and you've taken it back. 
Now, to understand what the psalmist is talking about, we have to understand the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised to David that the Messiah, Jesus, was going to come from his line and that God would establish a lineage through David that would reign forever that the line of David would never end and that that line would go through the nation of Israel and they would reign. And the people believed that that word was the covenant that God had made with them and it would endure forever, right? And it was an unconditional covenant. What that means is that it wasn't a requirement that Israel was perfect. God had promised through Nathan the prophet that he would continue the line of David all the way to the promised Messiah, no matter what happened to Israel or what they did. They believed it. In fact, we know it's true because we have the other end of the picture, right? We have the redemptive story. We have the person of Jesus. We have the the whole of the Bible to look back and see how God was so faithful, even to the scattering of people and the ransacking of kingdoms and how he brings people back, right, through Nehemiah and Ezra to rebuild walls. We have this picture of God's redemptive story. But imagine sitting in the middle of it having been told by God, by the prophet Nathan, by David himself, that God was going to establish a line and that our country, our people, would never perish. But that God was going to bring the Messiah through David's line. And before you know it, the northern kingdom is gone. And then before you know it, the southern kingdom is gone. And everybody that you were around has been carried off into exile and you watched your father drug off by a barbarian people into a place that you don't know. And you watch the temple, which was not just a temple. It was the presence of God. It was the place where God himself dwelled. You watched it shattered and broken and burned. And the psalmist says, you have rejected us. You have pushed us away, and you have taken back your word. Right? That's a strong accusation. He goes on to say, listen to what else, God. If that's not enough, right? If that's not enough... You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all the enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword. You have not supported him in battle. You have put it into a splinter. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. So God, if it's not enough that you have rejected, okay, it's not enough that you have pushed away and that you have taken back your word, but you have betrayed us. And you have embarrassed us. You have shamed us. I mean, think about that for a moment. Right? I mean, these are things we would never really say out loud to God. God, you have betrayed me. You promised. And then you lifted up all of our enemies that you said you would protect us from, and they are laughing at us. And they are rejoicing. And you have covered your servant David, right, in shame. And as a nation, you have shamed us, and we are embarrassed. And God, it's your fault. Now, most of us, We couldn't ever think about even uttering those words to God. God, you have rejected, you have shunned, you have broken your word or at least taken it back and you have betrayed us and you have embarrassed me. Now, most of us wouldn't dare say that because we know that a lot of times it's our movements and actions, of course, but still, if you're honest, truly honest, at some point in time, one of those strains of thought has run through your mind saying, God, why? If you promise to protect me and provide for me and never let us fail, like why is this happening, right? Why does everybody else around us just seem to 
float through life, and it feels like everything I touched is just complicated. God, why do I feel like at the time where I need you the most, you're just gone? Those seasons come and go, and we're petrified to say them, but if you've been like me ever, you've had those moments where you just wanted to lift your fist up at God and go, why? I prayed and prayed and prayed for this, and you didn't do it. Right? I prayed that you would deliver our family or my mother or whatever it is from this thing. And I prayed and I cried and I even felt like in my heart you told me it would be okay. And then she died. Why? You've been like me. You've made those accusations at God at some point in time. But then things turn to where I think most of us, where most of us live. So most of us don't live at the the fist-shaking accusations, but we've had those things cross our mind. But most of us live in the questions that follow those moments because those moments of accusations, they're fleeting, right? They come in moments of despair and fear and rage and anger and hurt and brokenness, and and we want to cry, and and we can suppress them, and they come out and they suppress them, and then they just have a way of dissipating. They're there for moments, but the questions are what lingers. And the questions are where I think most of us can find ourselves. Listen to the questions that follow these accusations. Verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? How fleeting is my life? What futility you've created all men. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? And the word grave there is actually the Hebrew word sheol, which means hell or Hades or underworld, like, God, we can't save ourselves from the worst. But what essentially the psalmist is saying is, God, where are you? Right? God, how long will you hide yourself? Will it be forever? Do you know how short my life is? Do you know how short our lives are together? We can't exist without you, and you are gone. Where are you? And I find this question to be more about the places that we live, right? The accusations come, they're fleeting, but we live in the questions. God, where are you? Will you hide yourself forever? I don't have that much time here. I mean, at the best, what? I've got 80 plus years at the best? Most of us are kind of looking on the downside of that. Who knows? But there are times in our life where we look at God and we say, why are you hiding from me? Like, it feels like I'm out here all alone. Even the people I love and care about, they don't seem to get me or understand. Will you hide yourself from me forever? And it feels like that. Like, God, where are you? Like, I believe these things to be true, that you are loving and faithful and kind. Like, I know that 37 verses worth of that. But right now, in my life, I am wondering why you're hiding from me. And that's what it feels like. It just feels like I call out to you and the room is void And I beg you to make it better, or I beg you to make it more peaceful, or I beg you to give me a calmness, and it never comes. It's essentially what the psalmist is saying. He's saying no one can save themselves from the grave, or even from what's worse. You have to do that, and you aren't here. Because the people have been drug off into horrible places, and everything that we've known is crumbling and falling apart, and you betrayed us, and now you're not even around. Do you see why this is so deeply haunting? 
because none of us dare say these things out loud. The psalmist is crying it out. And then his final question that he wraps up with is this. Verse 49, O Lord, where is your former great love, which in faithfulness you swore to David? How I bear in my heart the taunts of the nations, the taunts of the enemies. They've mocked me. They mocked every one of my steps. Basically, what the psalmist is saying, God, is where's your great love? You remember Psalm, or yesterday, Psalm 8, or last week, I'm sorry, Psalm 89, verse 1 says this It says, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known among all the generations. That's how the psalmist starts this. I will make your great love known. I will sing of it forever. And remember, we talked about that word great love. It's actually the Hebrew word hesed or chesed. And that word really means God's faithfulness and loving action. It's an untranslatable word to English. Because it's got a different picture than just love. Some translations use loving kindness. This one here uses great love. But what it is, is it's a picture of God's covenantial, never-ending, never-stopping, never-ceasing love. It can't be captured in just great love or loving kindness because it's wrapped up in covenant and in promise-keeping God. And what we talked about last week is the psalmist is saying, I will sing of God's great chesed, his never-ending, faithful, surrounding me always, covenantial love, and I will make the generations know it. I will make it known, God's great chesed. You know what the psalmist says in verse 49? He says, O Lord, where is your former great love? You know that great word, that great love? is the word hesed. God, where is your former covenant, promising, never-ending, never-ceasing, never-stopping, faithful love? The one I just declared 36 verses ago as I cried this out, it is absent. Now I'm telling you, man, I have been in that place where I've wanted to yell at God, Where is your former love? Now notice the psalmist isn't questioning whether or not God's love exists. He's asking why God is not showing it anymore. He believes it's there. He believes that God's hesed is real, that he is a promise-keeping God. But he's asking out loud in front of everyone and for everyone to hear, why have you removed that former hesed? Where have you taken it? God, where is your love? The definitions are different, right? Because God has this incredible, perfect covenant love with Israel, and he was doing something very important in their lives, as awful as it was. God's movement of redemptive history was going to take a sharp turn when he rebuilds the walls, and his faithfulness shows, and they rebuild the temple, and and the Messiah will still come from David's line. God's great love, his hesed, never changed, right? But the situation changed, and the psalmist is missing it. And I don't blame him because I would be missing it too because I miss it in much smaller things than that. But the psalmist says, God, you have rejected us. You have pushed back your nation. You have taken back your word. You have betrayed us. You have embarrassed us. You've shamed us. Where are you? And where is your love, your faithful covenant love? And then it ends, right? That little piece in 52 was added to kind of coordinate all the books. But it doesn't end with a perfect little, and God, you're so great. It just ends. 
what I want you to understand about this psalm is that you, the same way that we couldn't take the first 10 verses from last week and pin them on our refrigerator and say, look how amazing God is, right? Because we're missing the whole back end of this. We can't take these verses and pull them out and say, look how upset and hurt and broken the psalmist is. They have to go together. And when you look at them together, there's something remarkable that's unfolding. It's this deep, real authenticity marked with truth and fear all at the same time. There's a few anchor points I want you to see that kind of the psalmist kind of moves there in the middle that I think give him the ability to cry these things out to God. And I'm going to do them real quickly. But verse 13, the middle of the Psalm 89, the psalmist says this. You're, he, actually, we'll start at, at verse 11. He says, The heavens are yours, and yours also is the earth. You founded it, and the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. So he starts off in the middle of that section by going, God, I I want to acknowledge that you are creator. You have created all things. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon were mountains. Basically, they were, they were walling in the north and the south of Israel. God, you created all of that. Everything is yours, right? You created it, and it is yours. And they sing of your joy. Same psalmist, same psalm. But he's reminding himself in the moment that God is creator and that all things belong to him. And I don't know, we could spend a lot of time talking about creation and what kind of our beliefs are, whether it's a seven-day, 24-hour creation, or whether God did something much more mysterious than big, but they, you can't get through Scripture without understanding that God created the worlds and everything in it. We can talk about it at length later. But the idea is God is creator. God has breathed life, right? He has breathed life into creation. He has formed the stars and the trees and The psalms tell us that he has breathed life into your very lungs. And what the psalmist is doing is he's saying, God, attached to your incredible faithfulness and kindness, which we talked about last week, is the idea that you are creator. You made me, and you made the mountains, and you made everything in it. Okay, And I want to establish that. The psalmist goes on to say, Your arm has endured with power. Your hand is strong and your right hand exalted. It's not that God has arms and hands. It's a metaphor for God's sovereignty and his power. Your right hand is extended, God. Your arms are powerful. They are exalted. He's saying, look, you are in control and sovereign over the creation that you made. You formed everything. The mountains cry out to you. All of creation belongs to you. And you are sovereign and you are powerful. Now, the idea of God's sovereignty, and I've talked about it before, but real quickly, is the idea that God is at work and moving in all things, and all things hold together because of who he is. He is all-powerful, and there is nothing that is beyond his control, and that God is working in all things for his glory all the time. And there is nothing beyond God's move. God is sovereign. means that he is not surprised, right? God is always and forever working for his glory. All things are under his control. And the psalmist is saying, creator God, who hemmed in this very life with the mountains, all things are because of you. You are powerful. You are exalted. Your right hand is strong. There is nothing beyond it. And we've got to understand the importance of those things because the psalmist is acknowledging that even in the middle of the depths of his questions, even in the middle of the deepest cries of his heart, they are framed with a certain amount of truth. Even though he doesn't get it or understand why God's working the way he does, he believes that God is these things. And as hard as it is to say out loud, in the middle of that, I still have deep and desperate cries. 
right? Creator, sovereign, powerful God. He goes on to say, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne and love and faithfulness go before you. So creator, sovereign, powerful God, here are the characteristics you're marked by. Love and justice, faithfulness, right? These things are markers of your character. I find that incredibly important because even in the moments of the depths of my cry of my heart, right, I want my life to at least be anchored in a place that says, God, even though I don't see it or feel it right now, I believe somewhere deep in the shadows of my soul that you are at work and that you are creator and that you are faithful and that you are sovereign, that you are loving and just. And I don't get it right now. But at the end of the day, I'm going to end there. It boils down to this idea of trust, right? But the most remarkable thing, kind of where we'll end today, is this. Verse 15. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence. The word acclaim means shout, applaud, right? Those who shout for joy or applaud. What the psalmist says is, blessed are those who have learned to applaud you. Right, to shout for you, who walk in the light of your presence. Let me tell you why this is so significant to me. It's because this is not easy. Trying to figure out how we live following Jesus, how we live in a life that is full of struggles and, and hurts and real fears and failures. It's not natural to just close our eyes and have a faith that God is who he says he is in this sort of blind movement with never having doubts. What the psalmist says are blessed are those who have learned to applaud you. Here's what this tells my heart. There is a learning process in trusting God. It's not something you do one day where you just sort of close your eyes and you figure it all out. But it's a learning process to realize that God is a promise-keeping, faithful God. That even in the darkest of times when he tells us he will never leave us or forsake us, we can look back on our life and see the evidence of his movement in hand and we can learn from that. Israel told stories of God's great and perfect miraculous wonder so that they could remind themselves in the darkest of times that God still loved them. It's why they talked about the Egyptians and the parting of the Red Sea and the the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's why they talked about pillars of fire in the wilderness. It's why they told stories about God's great faithfulness. In fact, the celebrations in Israel's life, the great feasts, Feast of the Tabernacles, right? Passover, the great feasts were reminders and celebrations of God's faithfulness that had to be learned and remembered. You and I have extremely short memories. God can be as faithful and he can do incredible things all the way up until he seems to be gone at this one moment in our life and we forget 20 years of God's protection, provision, and drawing us through difficult circumstances. And we find ourselves like the psalmist just screaming out, where are you? Right? And if we glanced back at the faithfulness of God in our lives, it would blow us away at what he has done. And we have to learn to applaud him. And as I was sitting with that this week, what I was thinking is, is God, I want to be in those moments where, like this psalmist, I'm crying out from my heart, and I want to stop and just say thank you. Like, I want to applaud you, not in that sort of kind of superficial way, but that part that says, God, I I couldn't exist without you. 
Like, I shudder to think of where my life would be without Jesus. It frightens me. I want to be at a place where I've trained my heart to say, God, I'm desperate and I'm fearful and I'm doubting right now, but I know a few anchors that are true. You are creator and you are sovereign and you are powerful and you were at work and you have shown me that for my entire life. Don't let me doubt now. God, I am so grateful and I will applaud you and I will shout for you even in the darkest times because you have never, ever really failed me. And what this psalm does is it takes from beginning to end and it gives us permission to ask God really hard questions. But we're called to do it with the right framework and anchor points in our life. God is not afraid of your questions. God is not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your fears. He's not afraid of the things that you don't want to say out loud as if he doesn't know them already in your heart. God knows what you're thinking before you even have it. This psalm is a great permission giver to cry out to God. But my encouragement and challenge is that when you do, like the psalmist, attempt to anchor yourself in with truths even when you don't feel them because they are no less true. God is creator and he is sovereign and he is powerful and he is full of love and justice and faithfulness and mercy. That will never change. Learn, train your heart to be someone that applauds God, even in those desperate moments that just says, God, I am broken. But blessed is the person who applauds you, who acclaims you and walks in the presence of your light. It's not a happy face, right? It's a downcast soul that is hemmed in by the truthfulness of God. And I know that you are perfect. And so somewhere in the middle of all this, I will be truthful and honest with you, and I ask you to resurrect my heart. As I mentioned last week, the great kind of example we have of God's perfect hesed, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, is the person of Jesus Christ. That God was faithful. And the rest of that Davidic covenant does show us that through the line of David, God would send the Messiah. That he would not only rebuild and restore the nation of Israel, but he never let them go. As difficult and dark at times as they were, God never forgot them. God never left them. In fact, he would draw them in again in his faithfulness. He would rebuild the nation, and out of that nation would come the Messiah, would come Jesus. He is the perfect expression of that. And when we celebrate communion, what we're celebrating is God's faithful, loving kindness. His hesed is never-ending, never-ceasing covenant love. And we have a new covenant in Jesus Christ that we no longer have to sacrifice or morally perfectly keep a sinless life but we have jesus as our savior his death for our sins redeeming our life it is the perfect and incredible picture of god's loving faithfulness that his great love was not former right his great love is always and forever This morning, as we celebrate communion, it's a great reminder of that, that no matter what we're walking through or afraid of or dealing with, or whether we're like the psalmist and we're crying out to God, saying, God, where are you? God, where is your great love? Or whether we're at a place accusing God of things, it's not a terrible place to be if we'll anchor ourselves in truth. God gives us essentially permission to scream and yell 
and then ask him to heal our hearts. In communion, this picture, this table, is a picture of God's incredible faithfulness. Every time we do this together, it's a reminder that, that as the psalmist cried out, feeling that God has rejected them, God had never left them. This was always the promise. It was always leading to Christ. It was always leading to your salvation, to my salvation, that if we surrender our hearts to Jesus Christ, this is our promise. And this new covenant never ends. And so this morning, as we take communion together, let's let it be a great reminder that even in the most difficult of times and circumstances, God's loving kindness and faithfulness, even in the midst of our deepest doubts, God's faithful, never-ending, never-ceasing love, even when my heart cries out, God always and forever is. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this table that it is not magical, it's not denominational, it is a promise, it's a covenant. It's what you gave your disciples as a way of reminding and remembering the incredible things that were unfolding, your death and resurrection, the promise of your return. But ultimately, God, it was a picture of your forever faithfulness, that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die for our sin, that if we trust in him, we have eternal life, an abundant life here on earth. It's the ultimate promise of the gospel. This table is evidence of your great loving kindness, your great love, your chesed, your faithfulness. So Lord, as we celebrate it, let it be a cry of our heart that even in our doubts and fears, God, you don't change creator, sovereign, powerful, faithful, just, merciful God. Help our hearts learn to applaud you. Amen. This morning we'll take communion by means of